this idea of like bullets and cannonballs is within this go-to-market flywheel, what bullets are you shooting? Where, where are you testing? Where are you experimenting? And then once you have those calibrated shots, you shoot a bullet, it works, then you can invest more in a cannonball to add and expand that flywheel, right? Assassin Scotch. I'm TK, founder at Unstoppable. On this podcast, I talk about the two things I love the most, SaaS businesses and Lagavulin Scotch. On today's episode, we have Kevin Yip joining us, co-founder and COO of Blueboard. We'll be digging into his founder's story and the incredible work he's doing at the intersection of SaaS and employee happiness. Kevin, welcome to the show. TK, thanks for having me. No, excited to be here. Yeah, totally. I'm glad we made this happen. So it's if it's Thanksgiving and you are talking to grandma, how would you explain in simple terms what Blueboard does? So when you do a great job at work, you get an amazing personal experience, whether that is learning how to deep fry a better turkey with a cooking class or go skydiving for the first time. My grandma definitely hasn't been skydiving. And so it's all about creating memories and moments for great work for employees. Yeah. And so that's how I describe it. It's been super interesting. And, and I don't know if you know this, but um, in 2015, when we were just about a year getting started, we had just gotten our first institutional investment from 500 startups. We were invited to like a founder retreat and, and you spoke at it talking about early scale. Tony Shea was there oh, in Vegas. In Vegas. And uh, I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed your, your talk and it stuck with me and yeah, excited to be back in full circle six years later. Oh my <laughs> Lord. That's awesome. Congrats on surviving and thriving. That's cool. That's so great that you guys were at that. It was a very cool experience being in Vegas, 500 family just took over downtown Vegas, which was amazing. That was my first kind of interaction because we were starting at the batch at that time it was batch 12 and it started about about three weeks after that and so that was my first experience i was like oh this is going to be amazing and so it was a good uh, onboarding i want to dig more into blueboard but this you bring up a good like cue here i would i do want to talk about you were in fine in the finance industry before and then you accounting uh, yeah Sexy auditor. Okay, um, there you go. Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit around, and this is perfect because you're in downtown Vegas, you're batch 12, you're starting this company, you're getting into it. How did you make that plunge? How did you come up with the idea? Just walk us through the founding story and what was going through your head at that time. Yeah. And so I started Blueboard with a great friend of mine that I've known since third grade. Uh, we played basketball together. We went to high school in San Francisco studied abroad, roommates after college. And wow. we'd been trying to start businesses before, never successful. And I came home one night working at PwC and I was just like fed up. I was, it was like 11, it was 11 at night. I come back, I'm watching ESPN Sports Center. And I'm like, we are the most boring people. And <laughs> it only took us a year of, for the corporate life to suck our soul like out of us. You were both in the accounting industry? Like you both joined so, he was a consultant at Accenture. 
Okay. The similar and category of similar, similar yeah. big companies. You're a number, you're a cog in the machine, right? Exactly. Right. And we realized that like the things that we really defined ourselves as for me, it was playing basketball, learning languages for him. It was making music. We had lost, we had not prioritized in our lives. Yeah. And so we actually took a pack between roommates to, to say, Hey, what are we, what's one thing we've been wanting to do that we haven't been making time for. Let's commit once a week, just like an easy commitment. Right. And so I, I did Krav Maga he took singing lessons and we just found ourselves every week anticipating kind of the next time we were going to do it, building happiness. And, uh, and we were just sort of really inspired by that. And so now how, how do we go from there to a, a rewards and recognition platform? It was really about figuring out the business model. And so we quit and we were like, Hey, let's create a company to help people get out and about and do the things they love. Okay. And we're like, all right, cool. No product idea, no business model. How are we going to do that? And so for him and I being in these big companies, for me personally, I was on a year end audit, a couple team members quit in the beginning of it. And so I ended up having to work about hundred hour weeks for this two and a half months to finish this audit. And you're 22 at the time. It's your first like big kind of opportunity to step up and you're like, all right, let's do this. And while I was doing really well professionally, my personal life was just falling apart. I was, mm. I gained 25 pounds on the project. My girlfriend at the time was on the verge of breaking up with me. I was just a miserable, stressed, anxious human being, right? Yep. And at the end of it, my manager came up to me and said, hey, Kevin, awesome job. Like the partner and I really could not have done this without you. And she put down an Amex gift card on the table and just slid it over to me. And it was like the straw that broke the camel's back but it felt super impersonal, really transactional. It was just like really thoughtless, kind of like that distant aunt giving you like that gift card as a Christmas gift. Yeah, yeah. And for me, rather than feeling appreciated, I was like, I'm over this. Mm. Uh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not feeling it. It's just not for me. And uh, I was talking to Taylor about it and he got gift cards too. And so we were talking about, oh, what would have been a better experience? And so this is where kind of, Yep. You know, these two ideas matched is imagine if my manager had come up to me and said, Kevin, awesome job. I know you love boxing. I actually got you a boxing membership to the gym around the corner. Right. Or, Hey, I know you and your girlfriend, you've been here seven days a week, 12 to 15 hour days. Why don't you spend some quality time with your girlfriend? Take her out to a nice dinner date, maybe a couple massage, right? Yep. Same cost as that gift card, but imagine how much more personal and thoughtful that would have felt for me as this employee. And so, oh, wow, like companies are trying to be thoughtful. They have good intentions, but the gift card isn't delivering on those intentions. And we thought delivering a personal experience was so much better that companies would just eat it up and buy. Yeah. And so that's what we got started. It's so interesting because I feel that almost all of us, maybe there's an exception of a psychopath, wants to give more thoughtful gifts, just period. Like, how do you give more thoughtful gifts? How do you not be that guy that gets the gift card? Like my niece's birthday is coming up this weekend and I'm probably going to get her a gift card. And, and I'm like, it's either- Don't do it. I know, I know. And I want to be better. I want to be better. And I think that's one of the big, great challenges. What I find interesting for you guys is that I think gifting is a macro problem. You guys went very specific on, let's create a platform 
for employers to employees to help them do cool stuff and reward them. Like maybe it was obvious for you guys coming from accounting and finance and, and consulting, but like, how did you make that distinction? Was it a bunch of twists and turns to go that B2B route versus the B2C route? Like it maybe is one way to phrase it. Yeah. So it was not obvious at first. And so we, we quit our jobs in 2012 but didn't actually launch the B2B product until 2014. So it was two years of meandering and it started off as a, a B2C company. We originally, you know, was, we're like, Hey, we're going to be the open table for classes, activities, and experiences. Yeah. Build the whole product up, had the first partnership with mind body in 2012, imported all our class and activity data. No one showed up. <laughs> and we, you quickly realize when things don't work, if they really don't work. And we pivoted a couple of times. The second pivot was like, okay, how do we organically get traffic? We built a simple CRM for these businesses, had about 50 experienced businesses in San Francisco using it. And we got their members onto our platform, had a little more traction there. Unit economics didn't make sense. It was a, a lot to tackle for a small team. Hmm. And then the, 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 the last pivot, hopefully, <laughs> was to this B2B route. And it was an idea we had early on, not as the core product, but as a way to, to monetize and as a distribution channel. And so that became the big focus. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Interestingly, I think early on, how we, how, when we thought of it, we we're like, hey, let's get feedback from the market. And we had been probably two weeks after kind of making the decision to pivot, we had no money. Both my co-founder and I had moved back to our parents' house in the Bay Area. We're kind of living there. And we sponsored a HR meetup in San Francisco and basically printed two shirts and put ex pictures of experiences on our parents' iPads. And we're like, this is our product. Like we're, we're selling it. And we, we basically were like using it as a litmus test to the, is this interesting enough for HR buyers? And it was, we got a lot of good feedback and we just said, okay, hold tight. We're going to be launching in four to six months. But, and so that's, that was a fun story. The funny thing about that is whenever people are pivoting this, I've experienced this myself when it's not working, it's a very slow drawn out process. But when you do hit it, that fit, it, everything moves a lot quicker. And I think that's one of the most counterintuitive things with startup building. When you don't, we don't quite have the fit. You're like, oh, it's going to take a while. It's going to be a slog. But when it, when it does hit, everything goes way faster. Like it, it's super counterintuitive to me, but that's what's happened with me. That as you guys were pivoting through these different ideas. We definitely had way more, I call it like positive feedback loops from the market when things were going well. To be honest though, for us, like it has been, I think there was an interesting article came out the other day from a, a first round partner talking about Roblox being, call it a slow bake company. There's the quick bake and that person had been on the board of Uber and, and some others, which are more, but they called Roblox more of a slow bake over like it took a, a while, like this yeah. nonlinear growth. And for us, I think it's been very much the same way to the story of getting our first customer probably not the most efficient way, but we went door to door in San Francisco. We, uh, we used uh, Crunchbase data when it was free to export all startups that had raised over $15 million. And um, we went door to door 
and knocked on the doors and talked to receptionists and talked to the office manager. Went to about 300. I got kicked out of Dropbox. I had to get escorted out of security um, <laughs> because I lied and said I had a meeting with the VP of sales. I didn't know they had access to his calendar, but we got one customer. They're still a customer today. Oh, and it was interesting. Yeah. We just happened to walk in, pitch the receptionist and the head of talent was waiting for an interview. And he was like, hey, this actually sounds interesting. Like I got an interview right now, but email me. Yeah. There. You guys didn't want to do cold emails or something? Like you wanted to show up in person? What was the thought process behind that? The thought process was, for us, it was, it was feedback from the customer. Yeah. It was having it's, those one-to-one conversations. It's really like unscalable, but the fidelity of data coming back to you is incredibly high. Exactly. And, and, and the thing is, it's, we're not going to do it forever. So yeah. like the Paul Graham, do things that don't scale. It's like, all right, let's yeah. get our first few customers to do this. Totally. It'll yeah. be fun, they said. <laughs> Fast forward to today, you guys raised uh, is a Series A. Is that, did I read that right? Yeah, we raised a, a Series A end of last summer. And so tell me about like, how is the company, how do you spend your time nowadays? What's different? Ooh, yeah. Maybe like uh, we have Blueboard today. We have, we've raised like to date a little less than $16 million. Some great investors, Origin Ventures led our last round. We have about 120 employees across a, a European dev office, San Diego, and then San Francisco with a remote contingent as well. And we have about you know, a few hundred enterprises using Blueboard to you know, incentivize and recognize their employees. And for the past probably five, six years, I've been running like our go-to-market. Technically COO, but I run you know, marketing, sales, customer success, and, uh, and our account management team along with finance. And my thing is really how are we crafting kind of our positioning and our narrative for our buyer? How do we know it's working? What, the one thing I like to talk about is a success-driven growth, right? Mm-hmm. Is you have this narrative and your customers, you know, buy into it initially and then they validate it because they have the success and, the, and they experience the value that you talk about. And then from there, they promote it. Success-driven growth is what I talk about. One of the things that I've been really thinking about working on is the, uh, have you heard of the book? Big- yeah. And so we got connected with those folks and, and I've been th- thinking a lot about category creation. Yeah. And, and how do you. For the audience that Play Bigger is a book about category creation and how do you actually cre- create your own category, define it, own it, be the category king, essentially. Exactly. And so I've been thinking a lot about creating that, that category. It's that next kind of higher level up from product marketing is what problem are we really trying to solve? How do we set the, really the, the, uh, the basis and, and guidelines to actually solving that problem and then us being the only, one of the only solutions to do it. And so that's been something over the past six months that we've been working on, especially with such such a change in, in how work is, you know, being done today, right? Uh, since the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think building a manifesto, which is my word for creating a strategic narrative, which feeds into crafting a category. It's so important in enterprise SaaS because for 
unless you're a CRM system, and even if you are, like majority of the time, they're going to be okay not buying a software solution. Like they're going to be okay not doing employee experience perks, but and which is why it's super important to create a narrative that clearly articulates what happens if you don't. Like what's what do you lose? What what's the downside? What's the opportunity cost? Right? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine for you guys, you would you say you were a COVID beneficiary? given everything that's happened? Initially, no. And so our, we've built our business selling to HR teams. It's a long sales cycle, but it's sticky when you get in. When the pandemic hit and shelter in place went into place in California, kind of mid-March last year, HR was in charge of shifting the entire workforce from, from, from the office to home. We got somebody ringing my front doorbell. Can you go check? My girlfriend's got it. HR, the funnel just completely dried up, right? No leads were coming in. No meetings were taking place. We weren't closing any deals. All of our opportunities had stalled. And so it was actually, it was really scary for the business. And what we did is we very much quickly pivoted, not on a a product place, but more on a go-to-market selling to sales teams. Yeah. Because our sales team was busy at hard at work. And so we knew other companies were as well. And so how are they incentivizing folks? How are they recognizing kind of the top performers on teams when people aren't on the sales floor, they're at their homes, they're they're in their offices, et cetera. And that was, it took a a few cycles to get through, but that has been a huge driver of the business as of late. Sales incentives, sales recognition, um, a big product that has been flying off the shelves, so to speak is our president's club. Typically companies will, you know, organize a group trip to the Bahamas or Hawaii. Everyone's going on group trips right now. And so how are we, you know, how are companies continuing to keep that magic of a sales club trip alive when you can't, when you can't go on a trip together. And so they've been using Blueboard for that. That's amazing. It's so funny because as soon as you said sales, what I thought you were going to say was, I want to send experiences to my customers or prospects. Mm. But yours makes even more sense. I hadn't even thought about that, but giving the incentives to salespeople, especially now that they're remote, salespeople are the most measured team in the world. And as soon as they exceed a quota or exceed a metric, they, sh- they want a reward. They're coin operated in, in a good way. And so it makes perfect sense that you would pivot into that. Yeah, yeah. And it's been... And I, and I think what, you know, what's interesting is for us is sales teams are looking for ways to differentiate above and beyond cash. Cash is king, so to speak, but people make that in commission. And it's this variable reward theory of, okay, like giving another $1,000 isn't going to move the needle, but giving a Peloton out potentially, right? Or maybe it's a weekend getaway to Napa. That might be in the $1,000, $2,000 range but that will move the needle much more than the cash equivalent. And so that's been a, a big driver. Yeah. Us. What is, so how do you think about go-to-market since you're in charge of it there? Is it your traditional, like just sending outbound emails and ads? Are you sending your prospects experiences to show them what the experience is uh, at, at a meta level? Like what, yeah. what the crazy things you're doing? Yeah, no. So what's interesting is it's how different the two buyers operate. And so for HR, 95% of our closed one business was from marketing 
driven channels. And so we have, we have a huge kind of community and database that we're nurturing and we get tons of, 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 of opportunity creation and pipeline creation from that. We haven't built a brand in sales. And so immediately I'm like, all right, we need to really turn on the outbound engine. Yeah. And so of our sales business, 70% is outbound driven, which is a complete, it's just flip-flopped from marketing. And so that has been a lot of, not sexy, hard work stuff, right? Of finding the right people, being creative in how you get connected. It's the outbound emails, it's the calls, it's the LinkedIn messages, it's researching like why this matters. We've been looking at, interesting, interestingly, salespeople are proud and like to post their accomplishments. So we're, uh, we're looking on LinkedIn and seeing, hey, has a top AE posted about a award or a trip in the past? And we're looking for kind of those kind of social kind of signals um, to sell. So now that you guys are scaling, you raise series A, like at a founder level, how do you guys balance? Do you do more innovation on the platform? Do you double down on go to market and scale? Like how are you balancing that tough call of more innovation versus just close more deals? Yeah, I think Jim Collins has a great kind of principle on it. And Jim Collins, he wrote a book, you know, wrote a few books, Good to Great is one of them. But he, one of the things he says, geni- it's genius of the and. Mm-hmm. And by and is there's often these times where you say, do we do platform innovation or go to market? And the genius is, let's do both. And while it's, it is counter to the, uh, I guess, the, the, uh, the idea and coaching of let's focus. But we really try to you know, figure out, is, are there, is there a way we can not equally do both, but focus on both. Our go-to-market function, how I think of it, right, is it's a flywheel. And how do we optimize this system? How do we know we're having success? And what kind of cohorts are we having success? How do we continue to focus more on what's working in our go-to-market? Yeah. And then the second piece is, I'm a big Jim Collins fan. He has this idea of like bullets and cannonballs. Is within this fly go-to-market flywheel, what bullets are you shooting? How are you, what, where, where are you testing? Where are you experimenting? And then once you have those calibrated shots, you shoot a bullet, it works, then you can invest more in a cannonball to add and expand that flywheel, right? Coke's marketing budget, for instance, huge, obviously a brand, they spend billions of dollars on marketing. They have this kind of principle of a 70% tried and true programs. Uh, 10% is on experimental, right? What are we, how are we testing our messaging? How are we testing different channels? 20% is scaling those, what's working to become that 70%. And I see it in a similar way with businesses, we need to have some portion where we're always pushing the limits and testing new things. Not necessarily like we're learning. We're not being like, we need to drive X amount of revenue by this day. It's, it's very much more of an experimental piece in order to take what works, a bullet into a cannonball and expand the flywheel, which is at 70%. Do you, do you feel that has that mix has changed like when you think about the seed stage versus now in the a stage do you feel like you're doing less experiments or more experiments than before seed versus after the a that's a good question i think we're doing as a percentage of the resource and collective effort of the team Mm -hmm. i'd say we're definitely doing less experiments because we're scaling and, and the core business requires a lot of in a good way a lot of resources to support. Yeah. Um, 
but I think the notion of just like experimenting at all is, is super important because even if it's not at the same scale, because you could take a few things, three different experiments that could have a pretty profound impact, right? On your, on your top line, bottom line, whatever you're focusing on, whatever you're focusing on and improving. For instance, prior to the pandemic, we, we were experimenting with selling to sales and it was a very long bake. It wasn't really working. We signed up a couple customers and we were like testing the, the narrative. But when the pandemic happened and we needed to pivot, we're like, okay, we're not 100% sure this works, but this is, let's really go for this. Yeah. And we had done some of the experimenting that you know, I think took out several cycles of testing to have more of an immediate impact last year. And it could put us in a really good position to, to raise and continue to grow. I think that would be an instance where we were still testing things out. We didn't know how it was going to like impact the business, but when things happen, it ended up being like a great, we had six months of learning, even though we didn't have the core revenue value that we really wanted from it. So that do you think, okay, first of all, it's conceptually right with what I've seen. I think in the seed stage, you don't really know what's going to work with your market and with your message. So you mm-hmm. do a pretty, you do a lot of bullets basically and try to spread it out. And then I think as it starts to work, you see what works, then you start to coalesce on the cannons. And then you still, and your point is very true, which is still have some bullets, still have some tests running because you just don't know. And in your case, because you had some tests running on the sales side, you were able to turn that into a cannon play when the pandemic hit. If you had no idea or have never tested it, you probably would have wouldn't have picked it up as quickly. Yeah, I mean, you just yeah, it, it would be there's so much risk. There's so much more risk involved with making that decision, and who knows what would have happened if we hadn't. But yeah, we would have certainly not had the confidence and like kind of the test and messaging and go to market that we did otherwise. Yeah, I think that's one of the toughest things as a founder, just knowing when you need to laser focus and knowing when you need to have a couple of bets or side bets and Mm. knowing when to double down and when not to like, that's literally what you get paid the medium bucks for and the big bucks in the long run as a founder, I feel. Yeah, definitely. Cause there's no easy answer, right? That's right. There's no right answer. And you're just, sometimes it's, Oh shit. Let's just figure out, see if this works. And then other times there's, there's a, there, there's a, probably a, a higher degree of confidence when you make the decision. But at the end of the day, that's your job as a leader and, and kind of founder is, you know, determining what businesses you're in and, and where your focus is. Um, yeah. yeah. I want to be respectful for your time. So the, one last question for you, and then we'll close out. You're navigating this Shawshank crawl to the next stage of growth. You navigate the path to product market fit. What's the one thing just from a personal level, like what, what advice you would give to founders that are actively doing the crawl as well to navigate the path on a personal way? What's one thing, one habit, one activity that helped you get to this point from a personal life point of view? There's a lot of, I don't know if it's like necessarily one thing, but I think my co-founder and I, 
we've known each other since third grade, but we, we really know each other and we look after each other, like beyond just the business, but like how we're doing individually and being able to have a partner where you can just be like, dude, like today fucking sucks. I'm stressed out. Like I'm burnt out. Or you go on vacation, you could actually go on vacation. Right? You'd be like, hey, you could actually unplug. And that means that when he goes on vacation, I'm like working overtime, double time. And when I do, he is, right? But like that type of partnership is, uh, is super important because it, 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 it's, it builds trust. It leads to just like a whole lot of like renewal. And I think that's been like kind of the highest leverage thing for Blueboard and, and me is building that really strong relationship and partnership with my co-founder. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, you, you've had the privilege of doing it over multiple decades since you met in the third grade, which is incredible. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not easily recable. And we've definitely gone through our ups and downs because being, being best friends and starting a business together, there's a different adjustment there. Yeah. That's been really good. I think another one too is that for me early on was things are it's it, everything is an, it's emotional roller coaster things are never as this is at least my motto things are never as bad as they seem so, and, or things are never as good as they seem until they are and so it's really important just to stay level-headed i think when you feel like you're on top of the world it's awesome to think that but it's like hey like there's still a lot of work to do there's still a lot of progress to make and when you're feeling down it's like, hey we've been up at the top before this is a momentary kind of like trough that we're going to get through and it's going to build resilience and grit uh, for us and the team we're going to look back at and, and laugh at it and yeah. so that kind of this middle ground for me has been anchoring right because if you go with the sways of the daily quarterly you know even annually like emotions it can be tough it can be tough yeah no absolutely i think mental toughness is something i'm big on i think 50 percent of the game is knowing that there's always another way there's going to be a tomorrow it's not it'll be fine he'll get through it one way or another even though it may be bad is 50 percent of the game of the of what we're doing yeah and it's tomorrow's coming so what are you going to do about it like how are we going to improve how are we going to get better a, a simple way to look at it is you could this is life in general right? but you can look at the gap there's always an ideal state and a vision you're building towards and you could always look at the gap of today versus where you are there. And I think it's important to understand that, but not necessarily obsess and perseverate over that gap. Meanwhile, what we don't often look at is turn around and look at the gain where we were from yesterday, a year back, two years back. And uh, being able to, I think, look back and, and understand, oh, wh where have we improved? Where have we gained? Is super important just to put yourself in this journey because we're all trying to accomplish big kind of audacious things. And the gap can be, the gap can be enormous. If we know where we're, where we're improving and we look behind us and we see ourselves moving forward, that to me also has been like a, a nice kind of, Hey, we have a lot to, we have a lot, we have a lot more to do and a lot more kind of distance to go, but damn, we've, we've come a long way too. Let's not discount that. It's like that saying that happiness is the difference between expectation versus reality and, mm. and understanding where is your expectation, what is reality and where you came from 
just self-reflecting on that makes a huge difference in your happiness level and how you perceive your current situation. Totally. Kevin, this was great. I have one last question, actually, and I'll kick myself if I don't ask. Yeah. I'm sure you run data on gifts that are given. What's like the weirdest, most popular gift on your platform that's given or, or, or experience? Ooh, the weirdest. I think, I don't know if we have any, what I think, so one was really, uh, this story still sticks with me, but we had a, it's, it's currently paused, unfortunately, but we had a provider, a reward was, it was basically forge your own sword. And it is a hardcore experience, right? You basically takes a solid steel kind of pipe, right? And you're literally bashing it. It's, it's a three part experience, Uh eight hours each. And we've had people do it and you have to be incredibly physically fit because you're literally just bashing it with a hammer. But we've had some people do that and it's cool to see them like with the with this huge piece of steel in the beginning with no form and at the end it looks into like a really cool sword with a hilt and i think that's a really cool one but not for the faint of heart either by heat or just like physical endurance i'm, I'm just i'm just imagining entire sales floors and amped up salespeople with swords oh that's awesome kevin congratulations on all your progress thank you for joining today i know our founders will get a lot of value from this also it's really cool to come full circle here like in bay from Vegas. I had no idea that you were there, but happy to be reconnecting now and I'm super excited for everything you guys are doing at Bluebird. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, TK. Awesome. Thanks, man.